Welcome to the Exhale Podcast, a candid conversation about current matters relating to respiratory diagnostic and lung health. Today's hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing and Communications Manager, and Troy Pridgen, Executive Vice President of Sales and Operations for Vitalgraph in North America, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Where do we stand on flu and RSV updates and post-acute COVID syndrome? Today, we talk with Dr. Christian Sandrock, a physician and professor at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, California. His specialties include emerging infectious disease, outbreak management, sepsis, internal medicine, critical care medicine, and pulmonary medicine. And we ask him these questions. Well, Dr. Sandrock, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. So please give us a little background on yourself, education, experience, and what your current responsibilities are right now. So I'm a physician by training. I did an infectious disease fellowship and then a pulmonary critical care fellowship, one after the other. And that was after obviously doing my internal medicine residency. And I did my medical school at Georgetown. So just a standard regular physician, so to speak, that does kind of infectious disease and critical care. I spent a little bit of my time initially working in the public health world, outbreak management, mostly with respiratory illnesses and highly contagious illnesses. And I sort of came through my fellowship with SARS-CoV-1 and the first SARS infection as well as anthrax. Subsequently, I did a lot of work in influenza, did work overseas, but it was also deployed for a couple different outbreaks, including Ebola. And then uh, pretty much the last couple years, I wanted to just get back and be an old school critical care physician, which is what I spend most of my time doing, which includes, you know, a lot of ventilator management, ECMO and other alternatives as well. But unfortunately, COVID and the pandemic sort of pulled me back into a degree, kind of like the mafia pulls you back in, even if you try and get out. So I did a lot of outbreak management again around this uh, pandemic from multiple avenues. So that's really my bigger background overall and sort of where my interests have lied. I've always enjoyed respiratory infections in general, not that you enjoy them, but the variability and the rates of contagiousness and how you sort of manage patient and equipment interfaces has been an interest in mine for a while. Well, that's funny. I know I, I think a lot of people felt pulled back in by COVID, obviously being a respiratory diagnostic company ourselves, it threw us for a loop. And, you know, especially with the last several months, one of the things I've been very curious about we saw the emergence of, you know, RSV big time, much more so than we'd seen it recently. And of course, our old friend, the flu, hasn't gone away either. Is it possible to be infected with multiple viruses at the same time? Absolutely, actually. And um, if you go to the CDC website, they will talk about the management of co-infection, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 and influenza or RSV and influenza or any combination thereof. And multiple infections is certainly possible and plausible. And at times, it's part of the natural progression of where we see things sort of go. Right now, they, you know, they're using this word, the triple pandemic or the triple-demic. It's interesting to see how that is part of the lingo and the language. What's really been surprising, and I'll mention, I guess, two things here. What's really been surprising is sort of the change in the off-season nature that we've really had with RSV and influenza. Because normally, you know, we're up here in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, in the United States, we're going to have our peak flu seasons are usually generally around roughly January to February. And that's really where things kind of will take off. And if you notice, you know, here in the fall of 2022, we've really had an early takeoff of RSV and influenza. And there's a lot of debate about why that is. But I think having the way our society had changed with COVID and how we wore masks, 
how there was a very, very deep drop in 2020 and 2021 with influenza and certainly RSV. And then you have a younger population of children under the age of four and five who've never really seen these viruses. Now, as we lift the masks and bands, they see the virus and it amplifies pretty high and gives us the surge we're sort of seeing now. But back to your original question where can you be infected with more than one virus? Absolutely. SARS-CoV-2, RSV, and influenza all use different receptors to enter the cells. There are different families of viruses, but if you have different strains, so for example, two different strains of influenza, an H3N2 and an H1N1, infecting a patient at the same time, that's how we actually get this genetic reassortment and these changes and new viruses coming out. So that's actually even part of the natural evolution for these viruses as well. Well, I know I was real excited to have you on today because it seemed like the media has kind of moved on a lot about this COVID, RSV. It just seems like everybody's tired of it, but it was nice to have a kind of an update of what's going on out there in the trenches still. What is PACS after COVID? And we've heard a lot of prolonged and distressing symptoms, which are arising several weeks to months after the exposure of COVID. Yeah, so PASC is the um, technical term for long COVID. So it stands for post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And that's kind of the universal name that is, I don't even know now if it's the World Health Organization or the scientific body sort of agreed upon, but the, the layperson's term is really just long COVID. And what essentially that is prolonged symptoms, and usually the World Health Organization and the CDC uses a cutoff of about 60 days from acute infection. So if you have COVID, it's acute COVID infection. And at 60 days after that acute infection, you still have active symptoms. That sort of kind of defines itself as past or long-term COVID. Now, within that world, there's a ton of different collections of symptoms you may have. The most common is actually fatigue. You also can certainly get, you know, the term brain fog or memory and cognitive issues. People will have chest pain, shortness of breath, a number of other rheumatisms. So there's a real wide collection of symptoms that come with PASC or long COVID. And it, what's really, there's a couple things that are really interesting with it. The first and a couple papers have come out more recently is that people who do not have severe COVID, so they'll get COVID, it's symptomatic, but they're never admitted to the hospital. They may or may not see their physician. That appears to be the highest rate of the subgroup that's getting PASC or long COVID right now. We do know that in early in the pandemic, when people before we had vaccines and people were admitted to the hospital with severe COVID, they did have these prolonged symptoms months later. But as we know, if you come into the hospital and you have influenza and you're admitted to the ICU or you have a trauma or a heart attack and you're in the ICU for 30 or 60 days, many of the symptoms you have after that long ICU stay is very similar to what we saw patients with COVID as well. So basically this post-ICU syndrome or a long ICU stay overlaps with PASC a lot. So sometimes it's hard to pull those two out is from a symptomatic standpoint. But we do know that um, patients who had mild non-hospitalized COVID or moderate non-hospitalized COVID will get these prolonged symptoms. And we are seeing that maybe to a lesser extent because um, the cases are less severe, the variants have changed and vaccination rates have, have been high. But we do still see cases with it. And some patients are pretty profoundly debilitated. And there's a number of different theories what's behind that. There's not one subgroup of patients that tends to be worse than others. But I will tell you in my clinic, I'm still seeing patients who got infected in April, March or April of 2020. They still have hypoxemia on exercise. 
or low oxygen levels, their heart rate still goes through the roof. They're still severely deconditioned and they can't exercise or do some of the normal things that they want to do. So it can be pretty profound. Yeah, all of that really hits kind of close to home for me. I, my, my wife developed COVID uh, and this was relatively early on during the pandemic, but has since, uh, you know, continued to have shortness of breath and, and has asked me, you know, what do you think? How long do you think this will last? I'm like, I just don't know. I, I don't have a clue. Uh, it could be gone tomorrow. It, it could be there for the rest of your life. So it's interesting that, that you kind of give us some insight on, on what we do call long COVID. It's just kind of the, the general way of lumping all of that together. I'm curious, though. So when you see people that, particularly with the respiratory, the shortness of breath, is there evidence of you know pulmonary fibrosis or scarring of the lungs? Is that something that you commonly see? And are there any sort of emerging you know treatments or recommendations of how do you monitor it? That's a good question. We we don't always see classic changes consistent with pulmonary fibrosis. So meaning, if we were to get a CT scan of their chest, would they have fibrotic changes consistent with? pulmonary fibrosis and not necessarily we do see cardiac and pulmonary dysfunction though so uh, if we were to get pulmonary function testing for example or do what we call a cardiopulmonary exercise test and stress you and see how you know much oxygen you consume how much carbon dioxide you produce determine your anaerobic threshold those are abnormal and there appears to be on a microvascular level so on the small vessels in the body there appears to be some damage and abnormalities that happen leading to shunting and dysregulation of what we call our autonomic nervous system. So it may be when our lungs, for example, have been really good about constricting blood vessels and directing blood flow to the most productive parts of our lungs, that is damaged and altered in the post-COVID state. Or we may not have, for example, our heart rate that is regulated in a reasonable way and works with our blood pressure and our lungs in concert to provide the most adequate blood flow and extraction of oxygen. And that's where we see a lot of these patients really struggle with shortness of breath. Now, the reason behind that is many, but SARS-CoV-2 binds to the ACE receptors, and these are found endovascularly throughout the body. We do know that SARS-CoV-2, which is somewhat different than influenza and RSV, not only replicates in the lungs, but spreads throughout the body. So you subsequently will get it, you know, obviously that's why you lose a sense of smell. It's also in the CNS and the nervous system and other areas. So it does affect the blood vessels and that change leads to things such as microvascular clotting or clots at a small level. Like I mentioned, some autonomic dysfunction and it's really pretty profound. But what's fascinating is some people may have purely shortness of breath. Other people have no cardiac and pulmonary abnormalities, but they have complete brain fog and they can't think and concentrate and are profoundly fatigued. And linking those disparate symptoms together with the same mechanism of action has been hard. Um, certainly the shortness of breath, chest pain, and cardiac abnormalities all appear to be this microvascular change, but some of the central nervous system portions may be these same micro, microvascular changes, but they also may be a direct effect of the virus on the brain. So it's really quite, it's quite fascinating. There's a lot we need to learn. And I'm sorry, I keep talking a lot. But the other thing with emerging treatments, there's nothing that's really been a slam dunk thus far. What we do know is that patients who have a lot of CNS related issues, so whether they have a loss of smell, brain fog, what we've done is that using an SSRI, so a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, something like old school Prozac or Lexapro, we found that that actually provides a little bit of help in providing improvement in the brain fog 
over the long term. So it's a very slow process. It's kind of like putting a cast on a broken leg. You use this SSRI, it's kind of a cast in the brain and it allows our neurons in our brain to heal a little bit better, but it's at a glacial pace. From a pulmonary and cardiac standpoint, one thing I've had some help with is actually beta blockers. So particularly our patients who get very short of breath and have chest pain, we actually will put them on a beta blocker to slow their heart rate down, to slow their autonomic system down. And it seems to regulate things a little better where they actually don't have low oxygen levels and sort of that chest pain and difficulty breathing. And that's worked a little bit to a degree, but no real slam dunk emerging therapies. It's still really a very new and wild west area of medicine for us. So can long-term COVID people still infect other people? Uh, Is there any evidence out there? So also a very good question. And the general answer is no. So one of the definitions is when you get into that long COVID period after 60 days, you're usually not contagious. Now, the thing that makes that difficult is we see people who have positive tests, particularly if it's the nasal swab with the PCR style test. We can see positive PCR tests at 30 and 60 days. But usually what we're detecting is small amounts of viral RNA. But is there a viable high level viral production that then spreads in secretions and is contagious? And the answer is usually not. Uh, Most people, though, by the time they're in that long COVID phase, this is all post-COVID. This is not infectious um, and is not related to infection. The one exception of that subgroup is someone who's highly immunosuppressed. So say, for example, you have somebody who's a bone marrow transplant. Could they at day 30 or day 60 still be infectious? And the answer is maybe. And that's why we do do testing on them farther out than we do our average non-immunosuppressed patients. That's very interesting. And, And it actually brings up something, another life experience of mine, and that was I was at a, a trade show one year and had a, a Bell's palsy, uh, which I've often heard is, is the result of a, a virus that's, that lies dormant uh, in your system. So with, with people that have COVID, even if they're non-infectious, uh, is it possible with uh, some of the CNS issues that it may still be there, still be present in their, their system? Also a good question, but it appears probably not. So that virus that lies dormant, it's part of the larger herpes virus family. So it can be, for example, varicella, right, which is the chickenpox virus. That then comes back decades later as shingles because the virus incorporates itself. It's a DNA-based virus. It incorporates itself into our genome, usually in nerve roots. And for Bell's palsy, for example, it's actually in the trigeminal ganglion where it sort of lives indefinitely until you have an event like that. SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA-based virus, and it doesn't use that RNA to convert itself into DNA. So there's really no long-term place in the body that it has that it's going to set up shop for a long period of time. So really, we don't have any evidence that that's going to recrudesce or come back. And in fact, if, say, you have COVID, and then six months later, you have COVID again, it's probably just another strain and probably not the original virus or any reactivation. Okay, well, that certainly makes sense. So like turning the page a bit then to RSV, because, you know, obviously COVID has been the the, the center of attention, but I've seen some people that got really, really ill with uh, RSV. You know, what is the the nature of that virus? What organs does it affect or how does it progress? It predominantly, hence the name respiratory syncytial virus for RSV, it's predominantly a pulmonary based virus. So this one doesn't replicate and go elsewhere around the body. But what it does, and we all get infected with RSV over time, but those that have really never been exposed are often at risk for having the most severe disease. And that's predominantly children, definitely under the age of five, particularly under the age of two two years. 
and the subgroup of premature infants, so those with either cystic fibrosis or born before 34 weeks, are at very high risk. And that's because they just haven't seen RSV. They don't really have the antibody production. There's not that maternal protection, even if from pregnancy or from breastfeeding. So, and what it does is it predominantly causes a bronchiolitis, so it infects our respiratory epithelium, but it makes its way down to those medium-sized airways in our lung and can cause a severe bronchiolitis, so wheezing and asthma. That's probably the most common way most kids are infected. So they come in with an asthma-like picture. They're coughing. They can't breathe. Their oxygen levels are low. And that's most commonly the associated source of death. Now, there are subgroups of patients who actually get a pneumonitis. So not the medium-sized airways, but the air sacs, the alveoli, can get infected. They're generally more immunocompromised or newborns. And there have been some associated cases of CNS dysfunction and cardiac dysfunction, but really it's predominantly all in the lung, which again is different from COVID, for example, which can go elsewhere in the body and cause pretty profound disease. And influenza, um, influenza again, is mostly a pulmonary disease like RSV, but there's a much more clear association with an influenza encephalopathy in kids or an influenza, you know, myocarditis and heart failure in both kids and adults. So that one, you know, influenza is kind of a medium virus with affecting more organs. RSV is really predominantly upper airways and the lungs, and then COVID or SARS-CoV-2 is pretty much everything. So Dr. Sandrock, since COVID and RSV, are we learning how to prepare the next pandemic? Do you feel like uh, patients out there are being more cautious? Are they understanding what they need to do when we do have a next pandemic, which is probably going to happen? The next pandemic definitely will happen. The question I think then is when, you know, which is always the million dollar question. It's like saying the next earthquake. We know there's going to be an earthquake. We just don't know exactly when. Now, preparation is really challenging. And if you were to ask me this question prior to COVID, I would actually have felt pretty confident that we would have done okay with a pandemic. I would say now I'm not so sure. And the real wild card is just people and people's behavior and people's beliefs. I think we have, as a society for a long time, have underinvested in healthcare and in public health. And we know this, and you guys know this from just managing patients. We have a lot of patients, you know, most of our patients are more sick now than they ever have been with chronic illnesses, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, obesity, heart disease. There's just been a lot of chronic health illness that's really put us at risk for having severe outcomes from these pandemics. That's the first thing. The second is, you know, our healthcare infrastructure is sort of really already on the edge, even before the COVID pandemic, or worse after that. You can imagine we've read so many articles about burnout among healthcare staff, getting adequate and well-trained staff to cover all these healthcare facilities and hospitals, having the hospitals have the capacity to manage these patients is a big issue. I can tell you in my town, we really haven't had an increase in the number of hospital beds we have here in town in about 30 years. But I can tell you our population is more than tripled in 30 years. So we really just don't have the space and capacity as well. So those things really set us up for not doing too well. But you can kind of survive if you can get society to kind of work together and agree. And as all we all learned with COVID, there's a lot of varying beliefs, whether it's vaccinations, the cause of the virus, how to respond to the virus, whether it's valuable to close schools and shut down society or not. And, you know, there's not clear data on all of it. It really becomes what we call kind of a risk-benefit ratio because, you know, shutting schools, while that may help for a little bit, at some point, you know, having a school shut, the kids suffer to the point where it's not really beneficial anymore. Or the same with masking. There is a sweet spot where masking is going to be helpful and where masking is not helpful. 
and we actually have some adverse events from it. So I think determining how best to manage these larger societal issues really is helpful. And I think that's the part we have not done very well. Um, if you look at all the literature, the one country that seems to have done reasonably well around this, surprisingly, is Norway. And what they did is they actually had a group, and I can't remember the exact translation, but the sole point of the group was to actually critique and look at how society and and particularly how physicians and the and the healthcare community was responding to the pandemic and actually make comments. So they were kind of like if you watch a football game, they were sort of the 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 expert of the color commentary on how the how the game was going. And their job was to sort of say, okay, you know what? It looks really good. Let's shut schools. Let's make everybody mask in public spaces. And most people shut schools. And they were one of the first to reopen their schools because they questioned very early on that, okay, at what point is the mental health and the educational health of our kids suffering beyond the suffering we're going to get from actually closing schools? And while many other places had schools closed, they opened them. But they weren't like Sweden, their neighbor, where the schools were open the whole time. Sweden had a significantly higher death rate compared to Norway. And Norway closed their schools a little bit, but they weren't closed for an extended period like we were in the U.S. So they found sort of that sweet spot by having a group really critique everything that was being done across the board. That's probably, at least from this pandemic, that's probably one of the better ways that we can go moving forward. I just don't know if society is really ready for it. I mean, you can imagine, imagine if we had a mask mandate, you know, again, nationally, even just on airplanes or in federal buildings, I think people would revolt, right? You would just see people are so sick of it and they're just not ready for it, including myself. I really, I don't really feel like wearing a mask on a plane most days and I'm in healthcare doing this. So I think people are just not really in that space. If we were to have another new pandemic in two years, I think we would really struggle to enact many of these measures. Interesting. Got another follow-up question on vaccination. Where are we at on that? Is there new boosters on the horizon or any other type of treatment? Yeah, so we have that the bivalent um, booster that's been out now for a little bit that covers, and that's, you know, both Pfizer and Moderna have the two mRNA vaccines. That is out now, and that's not a mandated vaccine, but it's highly recommended, particularly for at-risk people. And that covers two of the BA Omicron variants that are out there. The data that's coming out now from the CDC sort of supports that, yeah, you have some added protection in really at-risk groups, but it's not as strong as the vaccine first was. And we've kind of learned over time, you know, with these vaccines, it really depends what your endpoint is. Is the endpoint preventing death and hospitalization, or is the endpoint actually getting the disease? We certainly saw that it prevented COVID to a degree, but a lot of people still did COVID, but when they got it, it was not quite as severe. And the shots are kind of along those lines. And so we kind of have, you know, your initial series, your booster um, at six months, and then the new bivalent ones as well. So it's just multiple layers and whether we're gonna have each season now, like the flu shot, a, a um, coronavirus vaccine to sort of cover these variants is really a good question over time. We'll have to see where that goes. But we're kind of at the point now where there's a bivalent vaccine that particularly that those above the age of 65 and those with comorbid conditions really should get for sure. RSV, believe it or not, does have a vaccine. It is not amazingly effective, but they do have a vaccine that's out there. It's phenomenally expensive. Insurance doesn't cover it. And then obviously the flu shot's the flu shot. We actually have a quadrivalent vaccine every year. It covers an H1N1, an H3N2, which both are influenza A's and then two influenza B's. And that's pretty much been um, you know, relatively accurate this year in predicting which isolates we would see. So those are kind of the vaccines that are all out there now currently. 
Dr. Sandrock, this has been great. I've been looking forward to some sort of update on all these type of, well, pandemic in general and see where we're at. So we really appreciate you being here on our podcast. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, it's nice you guys are talking about it. You know, we sort of need a post-mortem, for lack of a better term, about the pandemic. I think we as a society, and not just in the United States, but in other countries as well, are not quite ready to do that because it's still sort of too fresh. I, for example, I can't watch TV shows where it's this post-apocalyptic event, whether it's a zombie or an infection. I'm just not interested because we kind of lived it. I want to see different things and uh, at the moment. So I think a lot of people are in the same spot. But at some point, we probably really got to look at how we've done and what we can do differently and what our goals are, right? Or is our goal really to prevent older people from dying or is our goal something economic and keeping society open? I think that would be a valuable discussion for us to have down the road. Absolutely. But other than that, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks again for being on our podcast. This has been very enlightening. You've reached the end of another episode of the Exhale podcast. Don't forget to follow us for upcoming new episodes and recommend this podcast to friends and family. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on the Exhale podcast brought to you by Vitalograph.